0: Tonight, we catch up on all the drama we missed in Tulsa King and 1923 over Christmas break, and then we head back out to the final frontier to resume our rewatch of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. All this coming up right now on... Uh, you know the thing. And welcome back to the Ryder Brothers, your Tuesday night home to catch up on Tulsa King 1923 and, of course, head back out to the final frontier. I am, of course, joined, as always, by the lovely Mr. Corione, Witch in Residence, and joining us for the first time and hopefully for all time forward, my lovely wife, H. Marie. H. Marie, how are you doing tonight?
1: Well, frankly, still a little nervous, but I'll be all right
0: absolutely absolutely no we all started somewhere unfortunately mr pollo zapatos is going to be joining us via chat he uh got the virus of unspecified origin so uh we wish you all the best john and we look forward to having you back um how's everybody's break i know we took last week off i ended up streaming anyway because why not but uh I i mean we definitely definitely had a lot of homework to double up and quadruple up on um, I don't know about the rest of you, but, I mean, these shows are fantastic, so.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I spent all day shotgunning all the episodes that we were supposed to review for uh, today, so uh, I've got a lot on my plate and a lot to discuss.
0: All right, well, let's uh, let's go ahead and just get right to it then, because that's what we do here. So, Coryode, why don't you go ahead and catch us up on all the Tulsa King action we missed over Christmas?
2: All right, so Tulsa King. When we last left our mobster, uh, Dwight had more or less picked a fight with the local uh, motorcycle gang, and that was starting to heat back up as he had come back to Oklahoma from visiting his daughter. And uh, him and the local uh, gang are starting to get into it. Then we've got um, the War Acres with uh, Stacy makes a decision that has serious consequences. Dwight and Armand dispose of evidence, and Bodie uh, proposes a new plan. Tina comp- uh, contemplates her future. We move on to a Dolby walls where Dwight and Bodie lay out a casino plan for Jimmy as pressure increases, Dwight, Mitch and Tyson assemble their team and Stacy confronts Waltrip. And then of course, the last episode, I believe of at least this part of the season, uh happy trails uh, where it's all hands on deck as tensions between Dwight's crew and uh Waltrip escalate past the point point of no return elsewhere a flashback reveals why dwight was sent to prison 25 years ago. All in all, it's a huge amount of plot that we got. You really get a better understanding of who dwight is as a character uh throughout that that flashback. And you also start to realize why he had such a problem with the with the New Jersey mob crew uh once he got out of jail cuz At the end of the day, he was kind of their babysitter and they screwed up a lot and you get that feeling. And, you know, a lot of the behavior from everybody started making a lot more sense.
0: Yeah, yeah, there was a definitely a lot of character development through these last couple of episodes. A lot of really high points, and I mean, definitely some low points. I really liked Dwight's speech about conquering fear and, and what it means to just push through. Um, and, and I think that that, that was probably my favorite part of all of it, was just him actually empowering his people with, with just the raw truth of, look, this is a scary thing, and it's not going to be easy. Um, what I do like, however, and I think my, my second favorite right beneath the speech, because these, these two aspects are very close together is the fact that we have confirmation that the guy who plays Gilfoyle in Silicon Valley is basically still Guilfoyle from Silicon Valley. I absolutely love the fact that that character is just basically still who he was. And it was pretty much confirmed in a total awesome meta reference of Oh, yeah, where'd you learn to hack crypto? I worked at an internet startup for five years. Um, Yeah, I'm choosing to
2: believe that it's the same character. He just disappeared, changed his name, went to Tulsa, and opened a pot shop. Um,
0: Totally what Guilfoyle would do.
2: Yeah. I I mean, and I'm down with that. I, I dig it. I think that that would be the perfect backstory for the character. And if Silicon Valley turns out to be the prequel to Yellowstone... Uh, I I'd be with it. I'd be like, yeah, yeah, let's do that. You know, I mean, it's not quite the Better Call Saul of uh, sequels, but I'll take it.
0: Yeah, I I don't I don't I I mean I I guess I guess there's enough realism in both of those universes that Silicon Valley could take place in the same universes. And I'm I don't know. I I'm honestly, I'm honestly expecting to see Kevin Costner make an appearance in next week's finale. Um, like it's cause it's run, it's written by the same people who, who've done Yellowstone, who've done 1883 and of course, 1923, which we've been watching. And uh, so for, for the record, not only do we have to see Kevin Costner,
2: but he has to go walking by a wall and on the wall is a picture of his ancestor, Harrison Ford. Just so we get the full meta text, Jewel.
0: Uh, Yeah. No, yeah, that that could. We're already just. This is great. See, we it, because these shows are done by the same guy. We're just basically all right. So, 1923. No, I'm just kidding. Um, H. Marie, what were some of your highlights for this uh, for the last couple episodes that we caught up on? You're muted.
1: You're muted. Eh, we'll figure out the bugs eventually. Um, I. It was honestly the Guilfoyle. The I was like, this is. Something that I feel like he would end up doing, and then they ended up semi-confirming it, even though it's probably not exactly the same character. But that was probably my favorite little bomb that we had in these last couple of episodes.
2: Oh, 100%. I think, uh, I mean, to me, the character development with Dwight, watching him mess with the biker gang, and all the little stunts he's using to undermine them, mess them up, put them in bad places, to me was just, this is the kind of stunts I want to see happening. Because you knew, like the moment they met, you knew that it was going to come down to a shootout. You know, peace was not going to be an option. And every moment that Dwight took to get him there, was all designed to make him do something stupid like go try to shoot up that bar.
0: I actually didn't quite catch on to that. Now that you mention it, that's that's right. Because cause, cause I was like, I, I had to watch the scene twice um, just because of the way that they mixed in the air tonight with that whole fight was freaking brilliant. Oh, beautiful. And and so I was like, but as I was thinking, like, why would they just walk into a trap like this? That's why. He led them. He, he specifically laid out certain events so that they would just try to ambush them at the restaurant or at the bar when they would think nobody was there or nothing was going on and they were just waiting for them to roll in and then they already had their traps set up and and yeah the, that whole fight sequence was so satisfying um it, yeah everyone a couple of people took some hits but no that's basically how ambushes go down if you get ambushed you're dead that's that's pretty much all there is to it. Um, well,
2: if it's a good ambush at any rate, right? But
0: And this was a very well-coordinated uh, ambush.
2: Yeah, and I mean, like, look, they call him Dwight um, be, for the general, like, as the general, right? Because he was named after the American general. But really, this was like a Sun Tzu classic, you know, n- understand, know thine enemy, understand how he works, and use his own pride against him. And that's what happened again- and again, and again. Also, now, I really, really need to try that apricot jelly.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, Yeah, any other uh, standout notes or anything you guys want to mention from, from Tulsa King before uh, before we move on? I mean, uh, got caught up on that a lot faster than I was expecting. But...
2: Well, I mean, one of the things that I was kind of sad about is we don't get to see bad face again. Because that dude was hysterical and I would have loved to have had him in, you know, the fight a little uh, in that last fight. But it does totally make sense that uh, they, they set him up in a position where he was uh, in jail because, you know, the actor was actually not available for for the shooting.
0: Oh, I wasn't shooting. aware of that.
2: Yeah, I did my homework. Um i glad somebody does on this show. <laughs> well, you know, so, uh, the, the, the initial plan was to have him in, but unfortunately he wound up with other commitments and that's why he missed it. Which is, which is a real shame because I think it would have been hilarious to have that dude in there. You know, like you almost want to watch him. Like, I don't know, like the gunfight happens and he just runs out with a board with a nail in it and smacks somebody over the head with it. Like you almost expect that kind of thing from him. And that would have been great. Um, you know, I also like, I think another important piece that if this gets a second season, and I know how they would do a second season, okay, if they get a second season, I absolutely 100% believe that a great deal of it is going to deal with not just setting up the crew because they've established the crew, they've established the locale now, now it's going to be about dealing with the New Jersey crew because that was definitely left in a place where there's still significant conflict there. And eventually that has to come to a head. So if they get a second season, it's going to be about Tulsa versus New Jersey. And that could be a fantastic fight too.
0: Yeah. And I also wanted to to point out too, I I mean, I, I gotta, I gotta say for the, all the, you know, stupid, stuff that we've had as far as media come through. Uh, I'm really impressed with these particular shows that we've been watching and specifically in Tulsa King, because we're, we're getting to see some redemption of father figures, but then we also have a really solid father figure, um, for, uh, I can never remember the kid's name. Um, his, his driver. Um, I always want to call him Dwight for some reason. Um, no uh he is Tyson Tyson's dad yeah. like when he basically just had confronted him in the driveway and just said you know you gotta do what you gotta do that was that was a that's exactly what a good parent does with their you know in a relationship with their adult children is you don't try to change what they are. You, you show them the alternative. And he even went so far as to go into that first, you know, little battle with the bikers with them. And, you know, he he makes his case and he says, okay, this is, this is where it's at. You got to do what you've got to do. And I've done the best I could to help raise you. And, and, but you're still my son and I love you. And it's like that that's it, right there. There's no, oh, I'm going to disown you, and I'm going to go on Facebook and talk about how disappointed I am, and I'm going to shame you like a dumbass. No, it's it's genuine love for between a father and a son, and they do a really good job of portraying that. I, you know, I came across that, that scene was awesome. It's like, cool. Why can't I have parents like that? But, eh, whatever. However, I, I just it's it's nice to see that in in the modern media when we have all this crazy, you know, dismantle the patriarchy silliness. And yet here we have these shows that are like, no, let's 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 just have good shows with good characters and show what good, strong leadership roles are supposed to look like.
2: Let's have male protagonists be good fathers for a change. And you know what, Dwight? as a father to his daughter has not been the most awesome because of circumstances that are almost, almost beyond his control, but he tries and he has been a father figure to many of the members of his little posse he's put together. And it really shows. And, you know, it's incredibly gratifying. Like, yes, this dude is a mobster. Yes. We are, you know, supposed to like him, but not like him. And yet you can't help but love this guy. You can't help but love the character Stallone put together. And I think that's a definite testament to the writers and to the acting range of Stallone. Which, let's be honest, who knew he had that kind of range?
0: Right? I mean, I don't think most anybody. I mean, he's he, he he's put himself in the main role and he hasn't disappointed at all. I, I mean, Dwight's... Got problems that he has to overcome and that he has to learn. He's by no means a perfect character at all, and and he's still, you know, he's made mistakes. He cared about somebody too much and tried to help her out, and instead she stabbed him in the back. So it's like, it it's really unfortunate, but it's also this is what makes the show awesome is the fact that we have this man who's trying to more or less redeem himself. As he's trying to redeem himself. In the way that this character would do that, like that's why this show's so believable, is because I don't have to like turn my brain off at any point during this show. Everything is is very well thought out. Everything is is planned, and it it's progressing. It's progressing the way that a show like this is supposed to. Yeah. So that's why. Yeah. I mean, I, I totally agree with you. Stallone's range on this has been fantastic. He's he's basically. I I totally forgot that he's Rocky Balboa at some times. Like, I just assumed, no, this was his life for 20... Of course he was in prison for 25 years. I believe it.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Like, you know, it's hard to believe that this is the same guy who filmed Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. Right? It's hard to believe this is the same guy that showed up in Copland. Like, and that's just a super credit to his ability as an actor that has only matured with time.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, H. Marie, any additional thoughts? uh, Or does anyone else want to say anything more on Tulsa King?
1: Honestly, I'm enjoying listening to the two of you go back and forth.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And it looks like uh, the same with Arende and and Pollo Zapatos. But uh, hey, you know, if you guys like listening to his talk, that's fantastic. Yeah, we'll keep doing uh, it. We'll I mean, we'll keep we'll keep doing it. We're gonna have to figure out how to stretch out this next segment a little bit, but I think I think we can because I think there's a lot of there's a lot about sure. 1923 to to cover. So all right, one last call for Tulsa King. Anyone in the comments? Anyone watching? Yeah, uh, this is this is final boarding call, and then we're moving on to 1923.
1: Right, second up, I hit transition,
0: there's going to be a comment.
2: Yeah, I, I was going to say, all right, man, time to pull out the DeLorean. We're going back in
0: time. Yeah. Arendee says, don't have Paramount Plus, so I'm just here for the ride until DS9. Well, Arendee, I appreciate your honesty, but uh, you could talk to somebody in this panel, and they might be able to assist you with a Paramount Plus subscription or something of the like. Um, just an idea. Anyway...
2: I, of course, would only be willing to offer such uh, things if, uh, you know, for any, uh, you know, legal authorities going, I would only be able to offer such things if it was completely legal and above board and in no way involved in any sort of, uh, you know, nefarious activity. That being said, you know, VPNs are a wonderful thing.
0: Yeah, I know. We definitely don't endorse piracy on the Ryder Brothers. We also don't really go out of our way to give a shit either. Um, So... This one, well, okay. This one's an emotional roller coaster to be perfectly honest because, um, uh, episode three was where I would, if we're gonna, for whatever reason, do a mid season break for stupid take a month off, I guess, um, I would have left it at episode three so. You know, however, you would have shifted events from episode, but maybe that's just how the, the narrative ended up coming down to because I, I felt episode three was the high point of this show so far, personally. Um, what, what about you guys though?
2: Well, I, I will say for the record that, um, when the, the scene where they go into town and uh, they're seeing the new electronic devices and they see the electronic washing machine with a big giant ringer on it, I'm like. You know, if it was an emotional ringer, this series put me through it. There are so many deep, deep moments where you really feel the love between the patriarchs of this clan and the, the wonderful exuberance of youth and then calamity after calamity. And intercut with that, you have this story in Africa, which I wasn't exactly sure how that was going to pull together with everything else. And you still have this third story about the residential schools, which I'll be honest, I'm not 100% sure where it fits into the equation yet. But you just know that the emotional payoff for this is coming. And it's going to be huge. There was also a in episode three, there was another scene that I really want to talk about because normally you won't get me tearing up over, uh, over, you know, what is effectively a Western. Okay. You know, I'm pretty critical on them to be honest, but when they showed up at, with the sheep to the native reservation and Harrison's Ford, Harrison Ford's character was like, well, you know, these sheep no longer have masters because, you know, we hung them all. Um, let's give them to the reservation because I hear the reservations running low on food, right? That was the only consideration was like, well, you know, these guys could probably use them and we sure as hell don't want to have to deal with them. And, you know, the, the cowboy that brings them over and is talking to the chief and basically saying like, look, they're a gift from us. You can do whatever you want with them. If you want to raise them, go for it. If you want to kill them, go for it too. You know, their hides make for good clothing. Whatever you want to do, they're yours now. Uh, You know, it's a gift from Yellowstone Ranch, right? Uh, You know, it's a gift from the Duttons. um, You know, just to let you know that we do care about you guys too, right? It really felt like you now understand what's going on in Yellowstone, why the the reservation near Yellowstone really gives a damn about the Dutton family. Because when you think about it, right? 1923, you know, the native situation in in that area of Montana is not exactly a wonderful one, right? And you also consider that these guys are pretty much used to the, the ranchers in the area being dicks to them. So somebody coming along and saying, like, look, this is the hardest year we've had in, like, the last 15. Here, feed your family. You know, here's some clothes when the winter hits. Any, you know, this is like manna from heaven kind of stuff. And we're giving it to you simply because we think you could use it for no other reason. That explains a lot about the future of this family. And you just know that if the native community gets an opportunity to repay the Duttons from this point forward, they're going to do it.
0: Gee, I wonder what such situation would arise for that. Uh, Rami writes in, Oh, this is still live. Nice. Yes. Uh, we got, I think just over an hour and a half to go still. Um, and we're just now getting into the 1923 discussion. So I really, uh, I found it interesting going back to when they're in town, getting the sales pitch for all the electronics and all the new stuff. I was like, wow. Wow not a whole lot has changed in a hundred years. That's impressive because <laughs> their, their complaint is literally the complaint that the people still make over new technology. Like, well then if we don't have anything to do, what are we going to do with our lives? And it's like, I don't know, relax, have a nice know, Tom Collins while you're finished with the cows. I don't, I, you know, it, it was just fascinating that, that it's, it's like, it's, it's the same. It's not what, not a whole lot has changed. Um, I did also. I mean, I, I like I said, episode three. There, so for me personally, when it comes to shows and movies, and and I do try to do this with my writing, is there's a pl- there's a whole world of internet out there for porno, and so I felt that these sequences definitely got the implication across, and then just kept going because I guess that's what they felt like doing, and I'm just like. Yeah, I feel like I'm just going to end up putting something else on here at this point because we're, we're just... We, okay, we're not moving on. All right, cool. So that was kind of probably my only complaint. Was, well, and that's not my only complaint. That's just one of them was was that... All right, we get it. They're naked. They're doing the thing. Cool. Move on. Where's the rest of the story? Um. Yeah, it's, it's really unusual to
2: be in a position where you're like, okay, you know very pretty naked
0: ladies on screen, but I really want more of the plot because this is so engaging. Get bring the guns back out, okay? Where where the cow where the horses, where the beauty shots of Montana, which they did compensate for in this in this um Oh, and we got some beautiful, beautiful um
2: shots of Nairobi as well.
0: Just for... Oh yeah. Yeah. But I yeah, I, I do like how they've already brought the one storyline together and we'll find out on February 5th how that comes together. And, you know, I don't know, Corione, how did, what did you think of the resolution with the girl escaping the, the, the nunnery? What?
2: Oh, man. So, this whole... Th- growing up in a family where I was in a Catholic grade school, let me tell you, some of this stuff brings back some kind of dark memories. But, you know, this girl is doing everything kind of all of us wanted to do at some
0: point or another. Um... Can't confirm. Worked for the federal government.
2: Yeah. um, But at the end of the day, it's, it's hard to watch and it's also fascinating. Right? And that's the most challenging part of this. Right? Is how interesting it is to watch someone who absolutely refuses to be tamed... And them dealing with a system that is going to attempt to force her into that position, right? And they have pulled out every one of the terrible, nasty tricks we have heard about coming out in now modern day from the, the terrible history of these residential schools. And, you know, I'm really, really interested to see where this character is going to go. I am really, really hoping she somehow winds up on the Dutton ranch and they just take her in because why not? And I think that would be great, but I don't know what they're going to do. I don't know yet. And, you know, I know we know now because of the Africa subplot that everything is going to get tied in together. We just don't know how yet. And that's going to be the fascinating part. Like when our our great white hunter makes it back to Montana and sees what's going on, I can only imagine the absolute manhunt he's going to go on for going after his family. And, you know, I'm half expecting something in between a shoot it at the OK Corral and Commando. And I'm good with all of that. I am waiting for the you know him to say something along the cowboy version of remember when i said i'd kill you last i lied i'm waiting for that moment because i i can feel it coming
0: oh yeah absolutely all right we got some fan mail in the chat uh estaria writes in hello my middle name is marie and orville nation says hey writer bros hey orville nation glad to have all of you guys here thank you so much for tuning in and supporting us please uh, if you feel so inclined, hit that like, subscribe, and you know the usual stuff that we ask for to help keep us growing. Um, but let's go ahead and hear from H. Marie regarding 1923. Um, just go, go for it.
1: Well, being a huge history buff, it's absolutely fascinating to me to kind of see the way that they're portraying the Wild West in the 1920s because you, you've got a good combination of modern and old so while they're riding through town you also have motor coaches driving as well and i want to know where they got all of those because i want one um (laughs) but it's just i love being able to watch the the modern the modern aspect of what we know today coming into back into the 1920s and still being able to ride around on horses you still some people have electricity up the mountain, some don't it just kind of depends um but it's just the costuming is amazing too. I'm I'm absolutely fascinated with that one as well. That's
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I uh I might know the people who provided some of the costumes. We'll get to that after this segment, of course. Um Alright, Orville Nation, we're we're here for you guys, so whatever works for you. It it's definitely doing a very good job of portraying that transitional period in the nineteen twenties from the, you know, living by candlelight to, you know, what what that was like. Like, we look back at history, and for me, it's like you kind of just see it in segments. Or at least I do. Like, here we're at horse and buggy. Now we're at motor coach. Now we're at, you know, planes and flying to space. And yet, the reality of it was it was more of a transition like there were places of the United States I mean I live in Idaho we're still 20 years behind technologically speaking on a lot of trends so it's 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 really weird it's really interesting to see that okay here's the beginning of what we consider to be the modern age but it's also still hanging on to that Wild West atmosphere that oh yeah sure there's law enforcement but it's all corrupt, because who's going to keep a bunch of people in line in a small town like that? Nobody. And who's going to well, care as long as they're not being messed with? Nobody.
2: Well, you want you want something wild, my friend? Because I've got something really wild for you. Considered 1923 for a second. At that time in history, the Shinchenku Jedi is just ending. So the Warring States in japan is just ending okay and the last pirates in the caribbean are being rounded up so it is entirely possible to have sitting at the same bar a cowboy a samurai and a pirate right that's how crazy a time period that is
0: this honestly just sounds like, you know, uh, half of the MMOs that I play. I mean, that, that's what you just described.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, you add in the great white hunter here from Africa, and you've got a DD and d party, right? Like- y- you,
0: yeah, you've definitely got a walks into a bar joke just waiting to happen. Uh, Wayne R. Crowling writes in on Facebook, living by candlelight to you. Yeah, I don't entirely know what you mean, but thanks for tuning in to you as well, Wayne. I'm glad you stopped by like i said it's it's just really well done in a lot of ways it, it it's visually it looks great the costuming looks great the acting's great the story it is just everything's great i just felt that for a mid season break it just felt that episode 3 was going to be would be that you know shocking shit just got real conclusion and instead, we ended up with well, okay, he's got the message that he's coming home, but now it looks like we're going to take an episode or two until he uh, until he gets home. And so, I, February fifth can't come fast enough. Let's just say that. Like, I, I'm I was really angered by that, uh, as you probably saw in the Discord. I was not happy that that we have to wait so long just to get back back on track for the season. Um, yeah, I half expected you
2: to flip a table, my friend.
0: I pretty much did. It was like, it, why would you do all of this? And then are we only getting eight episodes or really getting four more episodes and then take a break? I just, I don't, I, I, I really oh, am. Oh, I can explain why they would put the
2: transition exactly where they did. Please enlighten me. Simple. Think about this. When they come back, they're not going to have another episode before, um, the Dutton in Africa makes it back to Montana. So what they're literally doing is making you feel the weight of the travel that he is going on to get back to Montana. In real life.
0: Yeah. Um, real quick, Rami writes in, don't support delayed release schedule shows. That's that. That is an idea. Yeah, that's an option. Um I don't know, because I'm I'm one of the few on this show who actually watches the next time on uh, whatever. Whatever. And okay. and it looks like there is an episode where they are going to have to try to get passage back to the United States. Because I thought that too, and I was like, well, maybe that's what's going to happen, is it's going to make us feel like we're waiting along with them, but I, I don't know. I, I just, it, it would have been nice if they just kept it on a weekly thing like Tulsa King or released all at once as as Rami suggests the whole mid-season thing that was done i mean that's the normal release schedule the way that they used to do for the standard fall schedule and i think they still do i just don't watch conventional television as much anymore where they do yeah you start in the fall and you get your first half of the season and then usually around thanksgiving time uh, the series goes on break until january because we have nothing better to do in january except watch tv um this one we started in December and it's the beginning of January and we're already on break. And I'm like, I said, it's just throwing me off. Um, but yeah,
2: I I personally, I think though, that we're going to get an incredible plot going on here. And you know what? I'm also going to say, which blew me away from 1923. Okay. I'm curious to what you guys said,
0: which take a drink.
2: Yeah. Okay. Um, I want to know which romance has interested you guys the most. Because for me, it's the old couple. Those two being quite literally an old married couple has really touched me in like a, these are two people that genuinely, truly love each other to an incredible degree. And you can feel it. And, you know, between Helen Mirren and Harrison Ford. That's the romance that I'm most interested in.
0: This is the romance that we should have seen in Farce Awakens. This is the Princess Leia and Han Solo that we should have gotten. Because, yeah, it is the romance you're interested Because it's, it's Harrison Ford who's basically playing Indiana Jones as Han Solo. And, you know, Helen Mary just delivering an outstanding performance. Um... Yeah, I, I think I have to agree with you. That's that's probably my favorite romance as well. I mean, uh, H. Marie and I feel that that's where we're at now, just because, <laughs> I mean, I feel like I have the mentality of a 60-year-old half the time. Yeah, um, I
2: disagree. I've never seen you shave, sir.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I... Um, Lost my train of thought for a second. Right. No, I, I love their banter. It's all good. But I also really love how this show actually portrays what life is like for women in this situation. It's going, you know, that it's going against that current modern day feminist narrative of, Oh, you know, women were just treated like property and whatever. And I, don't get me wrong. In some cases, it was bad and, and that's not right. But in this case, we can clearly see that that uh Ford and marrying they're a team. they function like a team
2: yeah it's a true, honest, beautiful partnership, and you know one of the coolest things I think we see is the really, really young couple that are just about to get married. You can see them taking their cues from this older couple for like an example of this is where we want to get to. And they've still got that exuberance of youth and all of those good things. And yeah, you know, we got treated to quite the beautiful scene of them together. And I, I dig it. But I also get that, like, they're they're hoping to get to that point, right? They're hoping to get to be as cool as, you know, Helen Mirren and Harrison Ford's characters. And that's that's something like deeply wholesome that I wasn't expecting from a show where people are shooting each other
0: over sheep right like <laughs> wow it sounds really stupid when you put it like that well
2: I mean it, it makes for a beautiful contrast right
0: yeah yeah absolutely uh, a couple of fan mails uh, Rami quotes my uh Princess Leia and Han Solo romance that we should have gotten so um yeah thank you for agreeing with me And Arende says, I've never seen him with eyes either. LOL.
2: Uh, yeah, he usually squints an awful lot, but it works here, right? Look, and, you know, him seeing himself as still the young cowboy until he takes a look in the mirror and goes, oh, damn, I actually am an old geezer now.
0: Yeah, Where'd this old man come from? Yeah, that's like me every day. Right?
2: Uh, You and me both, right? Um...
0: Now the beard looks good though.
2: Yeah, well, you know, I kind of like what I got going on here, but you know, I've got the the you know it it was either that or I have to go you know bald with the goatee and go like full evil Ming the Merciless kind of thing, but I think this is working for now. All right. Yeah. Um, No, it's. it's, mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) But anyway, yeah, it's it works and every one of the characters feels incredibly authentic to what they're doing. You get the impression that they've done their, their notes on history, even, you know, some of the best history work I feel like in the show was also the Africa parts as well, because you're seeing that. Yeah. Europe at that time kind of treated Africa as it's vacation spot, right? You know, women could go there and wear trousers, right? Like, You know, it was one of those wild places and yet, you know, they still kind of, you got the impression that they not only understood that, you know, there were people there that didn't quite get it. And then there were people that really got it, that they are not the apex predator in this area, despite guns and what have you. And there were other people that were like, yeah, okay, it's an adventure. Ooh, scary things might jump out at me. And other people are like, yeah, those scary things have been hunting humans for millions of years. And they're very good at it.
0: Oh, yeah. I I really love that line where he was like, you know, the difference between hunting in America and hunting here is that in America, all the animals are scared and run away. Here, they see you as more of a nuisance. And it was like interesting observation. Probably very true. Probably why. Yeah, if you go on a safari, you're likely to get attacked, whereas here in the United States, you just safari yourself anywhere. Nothing wants to be around you anyway. It's really weird. The animals here do kind of have that American mentality of leave me the leave me alone. Well, I mean, when you consider it right,
2: like, let's think about this for a few seconds. Africa has seen humanity grow up, right? They still remember when we had to run from them every damn time and they have not forgotten that. Right now switch to humans in North America by the time we really started getting somewhere in North America the natives got very good at hunting just about everything they could get they could conceivably hunt. And they were by the time they came across the land bridge to North America they had already mastered those skills. So they were already very proficient at hunting things. So the creatures in North America have a very appropriate fear of an apex predator. But the creatures in Africa still remember when we were most definitely not the apex predator and are not going to let us forget that.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Rende writes in, uh, been bad as an egg since 2007. Okay. All right. Uh, additional context required, please. Um, yeah, I think, I think oh, you're right. I
2: think it's bald as an egg since 2007.
0: Fat-fingered the key. Got you, bro. Hey, bald as it takes to... Hey, nothing wrong with that. Like we said, just don't forget to shine. Dude, Um, some of
2: the best supervillains are all bald, man. Ming the Merciless,
0: Lex Luthor. Dude, you are in... Dr. Evil, you are in good company. Oh, or, you know, we could go the heroic route, the Cisco, starting at Season 2 on. Oh, yes. Yeah, really, really huge difference in the way that character comes off, but more on that soon. Um... Yeah, I think we're going to see uh, Glenda says, hello, I'm kind of lurking. Glad you're kind of lurking. That's better than not lurking. Glad to see you, Glenda. Welcome. Um, glad to have you all here. Um, 1923, I think, is going to end with a pretty big bang. I think that we are setting up to some kind of epic finale gunfight. I think you're right. is going to involve the, the local natives, and who knows how that's going to play out. But it's, I don't know. It, it, I didn't get into this show expecting a huge giant cowboy battle. And now after everything we've seen so far, after having a couple of smaller cowboy battles, I'm like, man, with all these drone shots and establishing beauty, I think I want a big ass cowboy battle. Um, but on in the, the entire way that we get there, though, is you see, I think what I'm really loving about these shows is we're not just getting solid narratives we're getting solid narratives with equally balanced out action. And this is, well, kind of one of my arguments in that, you know, in favor of some of the newer, well, some of the way that I think they could have done newer Star Trek, for example, is to bring in new fans. I think it's great to have all these visual effects. I think it's fine if we want to have giant space battles and stuff blowing up. I mean, there's an audience for Star Wars for a reason. But we can also. Have good stories as well. And I think that's what we're seeing here. It's not necessarily just shows that are really well written and they have good action and they have great... Everything about these shows, I can't really think of anything terrible. Like, notice how since we started these, we've only had general discussion on. We haven't done what we like and what we did not like because what we don't like about these is tiny little nitpicks that we try to come up with to squeeze in time or to create topics of discussion. So it's like... If I don't have anything terrible to say about your show, it looks like you're on the right track. And this just proves that we can have some elaborate action sequences. We can have good writing. Now, someone might argue, well, Game of Thrones was doing that. Yeah, well, they forgot how to write a proper ending, so that doesn't count. But these shows, I mean, Tulsa King, unless unless next week's episode is just terrible on purpose, I, I mean, what do you guys think about the ratio of narrative to action? Um. Actually, real quick. Rende writes in. Dear God, bald lookalikes. That reminds me. Someone told me I look like Morpheus in The Matrix. And I'm not black. Uh, still sounds like a compliment to me. I mean, yeah. maybe it's your aura. Maybe it's the attitude you project.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know... Dude, Morpheus was a badass. Getting, you know, compared to a badass is not a bad thing. I mean... Dude literally took on a pair of agents with a katana. You can't get better than that.
0: Yeah, no, definitely, definitely not. Um So yeah, HBrie, what do you think's gonna happen? How do you think some of this stuff's gonna end up tying together?
1: Well, the one thought that actually keeps coming back to mind is when they're talking at the end of the most recent episode where they're saying, Well, we don't have an army. I forgot that they gave the sheep to the Native Americans. So they literally have a tribe that is, like, almost indebted to them, but not exactly. And if they hear they're in trouble, they might go, oh, well, they supplied us with food in our greatest time of need. Let's go help them out in theirs. Uh, That just kind of keeps playing through my head, so I'm curious to see if if that will come up or not. But I am curious to see what we've got in February. Ooh, ooh, I
0: wonder. I wonder if it's going to go down, like... The, the Duttons are going to have their fan, their friends and whatnot. And then they're going to be like fighting on their last leg. And then it looks like all hope is going to, you know, fade. And then all of a sudden we start hearing Native American rally cries and battle cries. And then they come in and get saved by the natives. Uh, shit. I really hope that happens.
2: No, guys, I got it. I've got it. I know how this is going to play out. Are you guys ready? So the Dutton that's in Africa is going to be making his way back on his way back, he's going to run into the native girl that escaped. Okay. He's going to, the three of them are going to head back to the Dutton ranch together. She's going to realize that these people, you know, treat her like a reasonable, decent human being, regardless of her background and everything else. And she's going to see how much of a need they have. And she's going to wind up going to the native community nearby and saying, look, You know, I know you've had your problems with white people. I've had my problems with white people, but these guys are okay. And we really need, you know, and they really need our help. And they're going to say, yeah, when we needed help, they, you know, they made us a huge gift. Let's go do this. That's how it's going to play out. That's how it's all going to get
0: linked. That. Yeah. I, I like that. I like that theory. Randy says, uh, says hello to Glenda and then says, I'm slow playing Valheim while I listen. Awesome. That's awesome. We do appreciate being your background audio of choice. Like really that that's any, anything you guys could do to help support our channel. We appreciate. Um.
2: Yeah. And Arende. at some point we 100% need to get 13 dudes together to play Valheim and just 100% 13th warrior that shit. That would be the most awesome way to do that especially given how
0: big you can get the long boats in that. I'm down. (laughs) Sounds good. (laughs) Great. I'm going to get roped into that. Aren't I? Um,
2: Dude, you're totally getting roped into it. But for the record, when it comes to 13th warrior, I reserve the right to be the blonde dude that has all the chicks falling all over him all the time.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's your movie. So of course, absolutely. (laughs) Um, all right. So any, uh, Uh, We are just really getting uh, getting, getting ahead of ourselves here. Oh, well, it happens, I guess. I honestly thought we were going to have too much to talk about. (laughs) It really makes a difference without John here.
2: (laughs) Oh, no. Homecoming, we're going to get into it because this is like one of the deepest episodes of Deep Space Nine that we get for a while.
0: All right, well, since we do have a little bit of time, if anybody else has any thoughts regarding nineteen twenty three this would be the time before we uh we head into our ad break um so well i mean there is
2: there is one piece I wanna note oh, please go go for there are a couple of interesting things that I think are worth noting in um in this show. One of them is those footsteps in Africa actually do exist. And it's incredibly powerful to see that. And that feeling of feeling very, very small really does come across when you visit places like that. And I highly recommend to everybody, if the opportunity presents itself, where you get to go and really experience history in the places that it's been made take the time to
0: do it um, there are what have you actually been to that particular site or i have oh please then tell us about it it's um
2: i mean when i went there it's a very different time right it's a little bit of a tourist trap now to be perfectly honest no
0: way and probably more so now thanks to
2: 1923 yeah right um and you know a lot of the the Histo- the truly historic sites are either roped off so that people don't screw around with them or they're, um, you know, set up in such a way that they're basically being monetized for, for vacation. But there are places in the world like that. There's a, a really amazing one actually in Alberta called um, Head Smashed in Buffalo Jump. And it has to do with the way that the natives initially hunted buffalo. What they would more or less do is spook the herd in such a way that they would force them off a cliff to hunt the entire herd in one shot, collect all the meat, dry it out, and that would be their their meat for over the winter, right? And like their supplies and everything they needed for over the winter. But going there, standing in that place, and looking out over, um, you know, because you're you're basically right at the foothills of the Rockies, and then you're looking out, over the plains, it is a completely unbelievable feeling, right? When you realize that for literally hundreds of years, the natives were using this spot as more or less a per- the perfect little, like naturally engineered hunting ground to feed their entire family for a year. And you stand on that place and feel that history and feel the weight of the universe. And they have gone out of their way to make sure that it remains as natural as possible. As far as the eye can see from that vantage point, you really do start to feel the weight of human history on your shoulders. And it's a beautiful feeling to realize that you are more or less a link in the chain that has bound humanity together. Right where you can see where your ancestors have gone, and then as you're looking out into the horizon and you start seeing, um, you know, the larger cities that are, um, you know, that are like Calgary and whatnot in the far, far distance, and you start going, "Wow, I am standing in the past, looking to the future, and I am in the present, and I myself am in the present." It really makes it makes you realize how not just small you are, but also how important you are at the same time, because it's your responsibility to leave that legacy. Right. And I feel like that is something that 1923 is really trying to get across to us. It is really trying to push the narrative that we are all links in the chain of the great story of humanity. And this is, you know, a, a small example of one of those links, right? At the end of the day, you know, the the story of the Dutton family or this particular, you know, couple of family or a couple of people in the Dutton family probably wouldn't be amount to anything like a footnote in a history book. And yet we're getting to see their experience and we realize that they are part of a chain that goes far into the future into the modern day with the Kevin Costner side of things and definitely far into the past as well. And that is a beautiful, beautiful feeling. That we're getting to experience
0: here. There, there's a reason that I put show notes in the Discord. I remembered my biggest complaint of this show so far. The machine guns in World War One Did not fire nearly that fast at all. In fact they were like barely any much faster. Than the repeaters that that were like. Like it was basically.
2: It was thump, basically thump, a thump thump thump.
0: Yeah. Th- that's exactly it. Yeah thump 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 thump. And it was it was more of a because of the way they did trench warfare in World War 1 it was kind of more to just slow them down across no man's land it didn't actually effectively stop them and and so it's like they get all of these other details for the time period correct and yet they drop the ball on that and i guess what maybe that's where it was to try and make the movie or the show i mean I think at this point we can call serialized shows movies. Right? They're just hybrids right. at this point, because um, that's all this is. A the Thompson t-
2: fired. I I thought the timing on the Thompson was just about right.
0: Uh, for hit. Yes, I yeah. No, that was correct. But what I'm talking about is in the World War One flashback when when it's yeah. you know when it's going off and it's super fast like a modern day machine gun. I was like, that's no. They were not that effective. They were. They, they, they already... I don't know. Oh,
2: I mean, they the were a new
0: technology, but they were a new technology for that time, meaning they were fired slightly faster than your repeater, but to... and Okay, you know what? Maybe that's why they went with it. Maybe they have it fire faster so that we can feel more immersed in the moment and more related to instead of... But, you know, for somebody who's visited the Smithsonian and gone through that World War One museum, I mean, it's kind of hard to ignore that.
2: Well, I... I I would argue that we are seeing it through the character's perspective, like the character's lens and him remembering it firing like a swarm of angry bees makes sense given, you know, the situation he's in. I mean, look, we can, you know, wax philosophical about, you know, timing on machine guns and whatnot, but the dude in the trenches is going to remember it firing a lot faster and a lot angrier.
0: I I'm now a little less pissed off at that uh, that detail now that we've actually discussed it out. Huh? Funny how that works on this show. Um, yeah, it's
2: it's almost like genuine discourse and and you know,
0: compassionate uh, debate, um, you know, can move minds. It's weird that way, isn't it? You, you mean screaming at each other and calling each other stupid? Isn't it, it actually causes us to use our minds and think? Um, but I want to go back to since we do have time to fill. I actually want to share some of my experiences similar to what what you did, and when you know, like sure. I watched that Africa scene, and I, I hear your story, and I'm like, you know what? So for me, it wasn't that, and it's not this story either. It's going to be the next one. I was fortunate. I've been fortunate enough to visit the land of my ancestors, the original York, England, where you know my family once reigned until we were kicked out. Um, stupid Lancasters, and. That granted, I was like, I was I like twelve or whatever? I mean, I was finally coming into that adult appreciation age. But it was, it was like, we went there, we visited. Um, actually, I've been there twice. I got to um, participate in evening song at uh, Yorkminster Abbey, so that was really cool. But one of the standout moments in my life for visiting a historical site was, uh, without a doubt. Northbridge in Concord. Um, I had just flown overnight to uh, visit my biological father and for for one of my summer visits. And uh, he was living in the area at that time. And so we got to to go out. And and what really amazes me about the East Coast is all of the historical, the living history that exists. Um, If you've never been to Colonial Williamsburg, that is an experience in of itself. And that is really, it, it, that's an awesome experience without a doubt. So with all of that, like, like when I visited there, I I read about the revolution and i read about colonial times and, and growing up, but I did that in Idaho. So when I actually got to visit these sites and I got to visit this particular site in, in the morning while there was still like fog and mist, um, it was surreal. It was almost like I had just been there just after the battle had taken place. And, and it's like, that's one of the founding moments of, of my country that I love so much. And and so I think I hear what you're saying. And I think that's where it would relate to me. I'm not opposed to visiting that site in Africa at some point. It's just, I don't think it would actually resonate the way that, that the shot around the world does.
2: Yeah. And, and honestly, that's completely fair. Look, we all have pieces of history that resonate with us more than others, right? Um, to me, the piece that probably resonates more with me than any other, uh, you know, being a witch, is um, there's a place called the Walpurgernacht uh, Mountains in Germany. And every year on Valpurga Nacht, which is in the spring, There is a they retell the story of a goddess who came down from the mountain and was hiding from the wild hunt. And what they do is they recreate this where they have this this young woman come into the village and then all the visitors from the that have come in for this event wind up chasing her back up the mountain. And it's an experience like I can't describe. The only way I can say it is if you've ever heard the, the disturbed song, 10,000 fists until you've experienced that where you've got that fist in the air and you're running and you're charging and your voice is raised in, in just exaltation at the event. It's something else. It, it It's this, you know, it's like his history and spirituality coming together in this beautiful moment. And that to me sounds a lot like what you experienced in Williamsburg.
0: And- well, not just Williamsburg, but yeah, like I said, at, at at the side of the shot heard around the world in Massachusetts, that that one's the yeah. moment that. But it's like, but it's like that all throughout the East Coast though, because everybody still has their colonial style houses and they still do a lot of the colonial style traditions. I mean, it's it's really awesome to get to see that and be a part of that. Like, especially growing up on in the Pacific Northwest, where it's like, well, I've never been over there, but ever since it was, I don't know, I kind of miss it. Don't miss the driver so much. They all suck. So any, any last, uh, Oh wait, writes in says I'm descended from both France and England. Yale on my mother's side and a splinter of family of Sinclair, which themselves are from the uh,
2: Merovingian.
0: Thank you. Line. If I remember correctly. Yep. Thank you, Randy. Appreciate that.
2: And um, yes, the Sinclairs are, um, descended from the Merovingians, which is basically the French, uh, aristocracy.
0: Yep, and that was the claim that was used against my family was that we had French ancestry. That's what the Lancasters used to wage their stupid civil war, the War of the Roses. And of course, it turns out they were just projecting. Alright. With that, it is, of course, time for our lovely little ad break. Uh, 1923, and this show is brought to you by CNC Sutlery for all of your living history and civil war supply needs c Sutlery is your go-to. Now, you might be wondering, what in the actual shit would a Civil War supply company be doing being sponsored by a show like this? Well, if you bear with me one second, I will competently get that on display for you here. Now, if you... Try the clear uh, the thing here. If you go to their webpage... You will find this section, which includes all of the different reenactment and living history and all of that fun stuff. But, of course, my favorite part of this page, well, second favorite part, really, is down here. All of the movies and TV series. That's right. C.S.C. and is pretty much the go-to for all of the shows, movies that we like to talk about on here that are period appropriate. Um, specifically, 1883, there was a lot of provision for that series. And 1923, we also provided some tents and other additional supplies. But, uh, you know, Civil War's kind of been outdated by that point. So, again, all of your Civil War supply needs, ccccelery.com. Now, you can actually support the stream directly here. Um, oh, wait, I do not have to pull up. I now, not want to waste time on that. Never mind. Add break over.
2: Uh so well, I I was actually going to say there are some very, very well-made night uh nightcaps. There, there are some well-made nightcaps, and out. they're on the
0: sales page at the very bottom. I just remembered after I closed it out. Go figure. Um but thanks for pointing it out. And... So with the arrival of Strange Unoriginal, excuse me, Strange New Worlds, we uh had some interest in starting up some real star trek and that is of course deep space nine we've already burned through season one so if you haven't burned through season one you still have time to burn through season one because it's going to take us a minute to get through season two season two of course starts off with one of the first more seriously serialized arcs in star trek deep space nine and that is the homecoming um i've got the imdb up so i will go ahead and read that to uh, bring everyone up to speed Quark receives a Bajoran earring from a smuggler. She tells, he tells she received it on Cardassia 4. It needs to be delivered to Bajor and any Bajoran will immediately recognize it. Quark brings it to Kira. The earring is that of Lee Nalis, one of the greatest war heroes of the Resistance. She thinks he is being held captive on Cardassia 4 and asks Sisko for a runabout since she doesn't get any support from the Bajoran government. Kira tells Sisko she believes he will be the leader... Bajor is in desperate need of ever since Kai Opaka left. Bajor is on the verge of civil war as the terrorist group The Circle is getting more and more power. The Circle strives to get rid of all aliens on Bajor and they have extended their activities to the station already. Odo finds their logo graffitied on the wall. That's an okay synopsis.
2: Yeah. So, you remember how I've been saying that the Bajoran resistance is a lot like the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. Well, fun fact, once the, the Ruskies had been booted out of Afghanistan, you know, hashtag, you know, Russian army sucks. um, The, there was a lot of infighting and a lot of um, people trying to vie for control of the territory. And you know, it almost feels like they're playing that out in this series too. Because the circle really does feel like the kind of homespun reactionary response that you would expect from a culture that is just broken free from an oppressive regime, right? They're, they're really trying to figure out where their feet are. And, you know, somebody who has guns, has money, has power is going to sway a lot of people into coming in along on that path. And we saw this play out perfectly in the history of Afghanistan. In fact, I often sit down and wonder what was going on in the writer's room when they decided to do this, if they were literally just grabbing from the pages a very recent history in that war going, oh, that looks like a good idea, let's use that, but with phasers, right? Um, that's... That's what we get to see, and it's a very natural, but also very sad kind of state of affairs, right? Um, Where we wind up with this, where we wind up with fear being easier to latch on to than hope. And we then get, you know, this figure of Lee Knollis, who, you know, he freely admits is all hype, is all tall tales, right? He's he's like if Paul Bunyan came down from the mountains and was just like, hey, y'all, and it turns out he's only seven feet tall. Still a big dude. You know, like Shaq big, but not, you know, whole mountain big. And that's what we get here, right? We get a very reluctant hero in Lee Nullis. We get Kira basically being put forward as this Prometheus-like figure where she went and brought Hope back from the brink and was promptly punished for it.
1: Right?
0: Correct. As, you know, life often does. Don't ever do anything nice for anybody.
2: Well, no. Do nice things, but don't expect to get rewarded for them.
0: Oh, man, if I got a story for that. Anyway.
2: (laughs) But the idea of, you know, she brings it back, she gets punished, we've got these, we've got everything you need to make this wonderful epic tale as the start of our serialization this this section of it this homecoming arc in the first in the second season of deep space 9 the first quarter i think of the season really is what we started going okay i see you deep space 9 i see what you're trying to do i see that you've decided that you're just going to you know lean full into being an epic i'm down with this i can get it right like you know this is a good outing this is a good first attempt at this and we're getting set up for deep deep arcs and we even get you know um uh vedic uh win back again stirring the pot right so you know this is this is where we get you know a good start to what I would argue is the real true plot of Deep Space Nine, which is the fight for Bajor's soul.
0: Yeah, it's definitely one of the, it's definitely one of the overarching uh, points that, that are plot points in the entire series. And I mean, it makes sense. It's the whole reason that they found a way to circumvent the Roddenberry rules without, being disrespectful to the Roddenberry rules in the process. In fact, it, it, it DS9 has a special way of taking the next generation, which is the idea, the utopia, the vision, which the flagship of the Federation is supposed to embody that. The next generation does make a lot of sense if you, if you recognize that, no, TNG is the standard. Deep Space Nine, however, is the reality. And that's why Cisco ends up being... Who is the best captain or excuse me, commander, in that he tries to be Picard. Even though he doesn't like Picard, he recognizes that Picard is still part of that Starfleet standard, that, that being better than yourself. And he also deals with being on the edge of the galaxy, being right on on the on the on the front lines of an entirely different quadrant. And he also has to balance that out with being a religious figurehead. And so it's the reason this show works, and the reason why I think it's aging the best out of all the Star Treks is, yes, the serialized stuff helps. And I think that's really the best way to do shows like this is to is to you could still do Bad guy of the week, which d s nine does and still stays true to up until the end. But then we also get a continuation, an actual, story that we're invested in not like oh yeah this one event that happened in federation politics. you know the most overarching plots that we get in in next gen is pretty much best of both worlds that's like the one event that's always referenced and talked about and i mean it's a good series of episodes but then it's like after uh after season four episode one which I can't remember the title off of my off the top of my head we you know just kind of go back to our episodic storytelling and bad guy of the week I'm probably not, I don't even know if I'm going to bother with a TNG watch through, at least for the next 10 years, just because I've already rewatched it before and it's just kind of there. Whereas DS9, is peak Star Trek and it, it doesn't even, it takes place on a space station. They're not even exploring space. Well, they are,
2: but they're doing it stationary. They're literally boldly going nowhere. It's fantastic. <laughs> it's amazing how that works. Right. And I mean, when you consider that, like, effectively, Deep Space Nine is the posting right beside the grimy butthole of space. Right. Um, You know, that just happens to be really great part that happens to have really great particle effects. But still. Right. I mean, it is effectively the grimy butthole of space with, you know, arguably some of the most unlikable people not very far away. And. You know, everybody just kind of trying to eke out survival in this area. And, you know, here comes the Federation trying to, you know, civilize the area. And, you know, this area is just flat out, no, we're never going to be civilized. This isn't going to happen. The best you can have is relative, you know, peace and comfort. You're never going to get, you know, a, a... relaxed day on, you know, the the cruise ship of the Federation that is the Enterprise, you know, stuff's going to fail. Stuff's going to go, you know, completely sideways. Parts are not going to be available, right? You know, if the Enterprise ever breaks down, there's an entire fleet, you know, within a couple of hours that is going to drop off spares. If something breaks down in Deep Space Nine, O'Brien's just screwed. And he just has to figure out a way to bypass it or build another one or something along those lines. All right? I mean, you're, you know, Bejor is going to be like, we don't have that part. The Cardassians are like, yeah, we'll give you that part, but it's going to be full of viruses and spyware. All right. And the Klingons are like, well, we've got a better idea. We'll just blow up the station and then you can rebuild. Right. Like nobody's going to give you a decent answer in this part of space and yet they still try to make it work with and try to hold their ideals together.
0: And that's a beautiful thing. Cardassians really just kind of kick you in the nuts with that, too. It's like, yeah, here's the part with viruses and spyware and malware. Not a single bite of porn to go with it to make up. Jeez. Yeah, but do you you really want to watch Space Lizards getting it No! It's the principle of the thing, okay? I'm not (laughs) saying that's what I'm into. I'm just saying, like, if you're going to give me a virus,
2: at least make it count. Hey, man, look, whatever happens at Quark's stays at Quark's, is all I'm saying.
0: No, it probably ends up as a stain on the Hollow suite. Anyway, uh, H. Marie's going to read some fan mail.
1: It might also end up as a holo program. Anyway, um, so Romy says, uh, let's all admit that Breen's are canon furries and ISB is an odd person. I don't know what ISB is.
0: Ira Stephen Bear. He's the executive producer. Okay, yeah, I can, I can agree with that last statement there. I would like an additional context as to why the Breen are canon furries since they're gas.
2: Um, well, okay, so it's not confirmed ever. We never actually see a Breen outside of its refrigeration unit. But we are told through people's stories that Breen is supposedly a very cold planet. The interesting part, though, is when Yun later in the series, mentions that their home planet is actually quite temperate. So, are the Breen covered in fur? Are they gas bags in a refrigeration suit? You know, do they happen to be the most beautiful species in existence but just wear a whole bunch of body armor so we can't tell? Nobody knows. And that's kind of the fun part of the Breen. That being said, Iris Stephen Bear is an interesting individual um i don't think i've ever seen him without blue hair and not just blue hair but like freshly done blue hair so i don't even know like i'm starting to believe that blue might be his natural color and if it is uh i need to talk to him because i need to figure out how to make that happen
0: yeah arende writes in uh that character kind of reminds me of aragorn a reluctant leader probably in reference to Leonalis, i'm guessing Yes. And uh, Galinda says, I love Ira Steven Bear. I definitely have a Ractigeno with him sometime. Um, and then she follows up. He's the great beard of the galaxy. <laughs> That's fantastic. Rami follows up. The Breen are canon furries because Ira is a furry in his online our offline life. The Breen are hunters to make a joke about hunting animals. They're literally furries, the goofy looking ones. CBS said if we show that, then there's no show. I mean, I dig it. Look, the truth of the matter is, you know, we don't actually
2: have a furry species in Trek that I can think of that is sentient. And, you know, we've got all kinds of other species out there in existence. We have everything from sentient lava rock creatures to, you know, slime, silicone based, um, you know, tunnel carving slugs that are sentient. I don't see necessarily a problem with furry dudes. Uh, It doesn't really bother me. Like, you know, it's not my, you know, it's a case of, it's not my kink, but I'm okay with it existing. Um, You know, that being said, um, you know, I I just don't get how you don't wind up having to
0: dry clean those suits all the damn time. That's,
2: that's my only question.
0: Yeah. Uh, Glenda says, I hadn't heard he's a furry and yeah, I had neither, but uh, you know what? It's his its his personal business, so I don't really care. Uh, Arende says there's tribbles, but they're not a sentient species. Not a, like an intelligent species, I'd agree. Rami also follows up. The Breen literally have a Star Wars mask with a snout. Agreed. This is intentional. It is to mask the wolf ish face. Also, there are Cations, but Cations are like cat-like aliens. The Breen are literally furries, like the cheesy sh- the art yiff kind. Oh. oh. Okay. I mean, look, like I said, I'm, you
2: know, I, I don't see necessarily a problem with it at any,
0: as long as you're not shoving end. your shit in my face. Yeah. I don't care. It doesn't seem like he's all out there trying to promote it or, you know, say, Hey, yeah. everyone should be like me.
2: Yeah. Like we're, we're not getting like Wookie romance scenes for lack of a better term. So like, I, I'm fine with it. Right you know, if we were Put getting PG like
0: 13 to its maximum on this show tonight, oh, love it. And we oh no. haven't even dropped an F bomb.
2: Oh no, hold on. I'm going full R here. Like dude, if, if we were seeing like the Wookiee red light district, then I'd be concerned, right? Like if we were getting that, I'd be like, yo man, Quark needs to to change things up a little bit, but you know, we're not, you know, when I joke around saying that deep space nine is like regular Trek, but with hookers and blackjack, um, you know, it, it is a joke. We don't actually get that, which in some ways I think is good. They, they push the line on still approachable to family really hard, but that's a good thing, right? It's a good thing that they're not talking down to their audience. They're also just not showing stuff that would inherently get them into trouble purely for shock value. Anything that does come up, that's a little against the the cultural zeitgeist is done to push the narrative, like to push the plot forward, not necessarily to cause shock for shock's sake. Right. We're not getting like, you know, we're not seeing Cisco's butt when he's coming out of the shower or something. What we're getting looking at is, you, halo. Right. Um, what we're getting is... Oh, hold getting, on, hold
0: on, hold on. I, we can keep going with this. We're not getting eyeballs ripped out and cut. We're not getting, uh, you know, F-bombs up, down, left, and right because, you know, swearing is cool. It it can be if it's used appropriately, but otherwise... Hey, man, uh, we're
2: not man. even getting turbo lifts that are going up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, B-A-B-A, start, right? Like, they're flying around like they're doing the Konami code. Like, we're getting reasonable stuff. And we're getting well thought out and everything, every single thing you see on screen is there to serve the plot, not be served by the plot. And that's the difference. That is the real, genuine truth of how Deep Space Nine is written. They sat down and went, how does this advance the meta plot of the series? And then they put all the connective tissue in place while still trying to tell a good story. This is how it's done. This is actually how Marvel's phase one and phase two were done, right? If you take a look at all of those movies, all of them were telling their story, but they also advanced the meta plot, right? They also add in that little piece that makes it a connective tissue so that you can watch all of them together and you get a cohesive story as well as a whole bunch of little stories. It's how books are written in chapters, right? Because each chapter tells a little piece of a story. It's got its own narrative there. But it contributes to the overarching plot. And that's what we want to see. This is good writing. This is a masterclass, really, in solid TV writing that we're seeing on screen.
0: Yeah, and and yeah, this is like, I forgot how good season one actually is because it really was. I mean, aside from Run Along Home, you know, it, it, it still stands on its own. And I think you're right you said it best when we did our, our season one review. It's because the rest of the show is so great. You just forget season one existed. And I mean, Cisco with hair is kind of, you know, you know, it's whatever. it wasn't as great, but
2: you know, I will say this too. Look, I felt like season one very much feels like they are trying to probe around in the dark to look for where the, where that golden path is. That's going to take them forward. And you can almost feel them trying a couple of different things, trying different types of stories, seeing what resonates. Season two is where they go, we now know where we're taking this. We now have a direction that we are going to laser focus in on. But we are going to allow our writers to explore things around that beam. And that is what makes it great.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, H.Baree, do you have any thoughts regarding Homecoming or just Star Trek Deep Space Nine in general? Because, you know, stretch for time on this one.
1: Oh, man, you caught me while I was in the middle of drinking, so I don't have a thought process going. Um, No, uh, what I find interesting, actually, comparing DS9 to some of the new Trek stuff is uh, we don't have alcoholism. Where in some of these newer shows, we have people who are alcoholics, but as far as I know, most drinks served on DS9 are either synthol or something of a variation, but you never see anybody drunk. You don't see very, or at least very few, you don't see any alcoholics. You don't You don't see a lot of the real-world real world problems that they've put into the current Picard, I believe is where I saw it, in that show versus DS9, and it's, it's nice because it's separate from Present day. People have to deal with that in present day all the time. So being able to watch a show and have that escapism, go to some, you know, space station far, far away, it just makes people a lot more comfortable, at least from my opinion.
0: Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Rami writes in Cisco had hair because they didn't want him to look like his character Hawk from Spencer for Hire, in that before DS9, he was bald and had the goatee. And you know, I, I respect him for trying it didn't work that was a stupid yeah, there, reason
2: there was also another reason that uh, they do mention in um what with what they left behind is that they didn't want him to appear so fearsome they thought that him having a more um approachable shall we say appearance a more calming appearance would um lessen the fright that some of the people were having over a black captain (laughs) right um you know i mean personally i you know it's not the time when they wrote blazing saddles guys right like you know we can handle a, a you know a black dude that happens to look cool right you know we can handle it then we can handle it now personally man if you've got a style that works for you It's going to be more convincing for us because we believe the confidence that you exude from having that style. And let's be honest, the thing we want out of our our leadership characters is confidence that they know what they're doing. Even if they're yelling at Starfleet for being asshats, you know, we want them to have that confidence that at the very least their, their intentions are good.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I mean it. It didn't make it. Didn't it? Didn't do what they wanted for what you just described. Like Cisco yeah. was still very much, um, Cisco. So yeah. it. It's. <laughs> again, I respect him for trying. At least it. It just didn't work. It just doesn't. It just doesn't. This is Cisco, right? Right here. That's yeah. him, right there. Um. Yeah. So it's and and h Marie, what you're talking about is is Pucard season 1 one of the supporting characters cuz you know Star Trek only has main one single main characters now and even then Picard was sidelined in his own show twice or well so I heard I didn't actually bother with season 2 and well let's just be thankful that we have this show to accompany I get that right eventually to accompany us with season 3 man i'm not looking forward to that <laughs> yeah if you're going to make us
2: watch that for the show uh, I'm going to demand that the show start offering like health insurance because
0: I'm going to need therapy challenge accepted I will try <laughs> to come up with some kind of gag from each episode to either turn into some kind of stupid ad or what at like it was recently pointed out that, that apparently the Sarah McLaughlin reference to Strange New Worlds was, was really good so oh, yeah I'm probably going you know what I think we can have a lot I, we can have fun with it like we should have like we should have done with Strange New World although Strange New Worlds did kind of show a little promise at the start um yeah you know look I, and I mean credit to where
2: credit is due look Strange New World's the first episode was kind of iffy and then it found legs for like 3 episodes maybe 4 and then it just went like off the rails and onto the Kurtzman track and listen, nobody wants to be on the Kurtzman track, okay? That that track does not
0: lead to good places. That That's where the
2: eye-gouging comes
0: in, right? And, oh, right, but th- I thought you were just talking about me wanting to gouge my eyes out. No, I forgot, I'd already brought it up, up getting his eyeball ripped out. In it, yeah. more ways than one is their eye-gouging with Kurtzman track.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, look, you know, they go for the eyes so you can't see how terrible the show is, right? I mean, like, that's... That's what it boils down to, right? I mean, you know... And I mean, they did like weird stuff. Like, on a ship where the captain has a better apartment than everybody I know who lives in an apartment. On a ship! And yet, they have Lahura living in a freaking closet. Makes no sense, right? In a culture that is supposed to be beyond the the needs to show off wealth and status the captain probably should have been in a reasonable space that he could have you know um uh, entertained dignitaries in but that's about it it didn't have to be like it should have been way more utilitarian and you know like with personal home touches but everybody else should also have a decent room
0: yeah yeah, so uh got a couple of fan mails to catch up on. Arande says, yeah, I agree. He looks a lot better bald with the goatee. Uh, go for the eyes, boo, the eyes. And then Rami writes in, Lower Decks has people living in the hallways now for some reason. Um, actually, that is uh, very similar to what birthings on a, uh, on a lot of the older Coast Guard cutters would look like, whereas on the newer ones, I only had to deal with five other people, and we had our own bathroom. It was actually pretty nice. So... Um, And the captain's quarters were actually pretty decent on our ship. But, you're right. See, that's why I like the Enterprise refit. The interior, they went with the more militaristic, functional style. Kirk's room is basically a closet and a half. Which is, I mean... It's reasonable. Again, you actually don't spend as much time in your uh, quarters as you'd think. Believe it or not, there's actually stuff to always do on a ship. So... It it actually makes a lot of sense. I, some people complain about the militarization of Star Trek with the refit Enterprise, and I'm like, no that that would be a lot more of how it would function. Um, yeah. so it's, but you're right, it's inconsistent with new Trek. I, I mean, it's in it's like one minute, yeah, the captain's living in a, a penthouse suite that you know he has holographic windows that could change. Whereas the original Enterprise was not that big. It was a functional ship to explore space. You had your place where you slept, you had your place where you shit, you had your place where you eat, you had your place where you worked. All in the same spot. And so Yeah. The open fire thing, I'm with you. That's dumb. Yeah. The whole the whole thing with Pike's quarters was stupid. Yeah, um, I mean look, I mean for I'm... crying out loud, the birthing on the space station is more believable. Yeah. It makes more sense.
2: I mean, like, and for those that are unaware, um, if you were to ask any NASA engineer what the worst case scenario of like the most horrible thing that could happen on a space station or a spaceship is, the answer is going to be fire. And when you ask them what the resolution of a situation like that would be, it would be everybody dead from fire. So having fire on a spaceship just seems like the most ridiculously dangerous thing you can do. Like, I can buy Klingons having, like, open flame candles everywhere because, let's be honest, Klingon ships are not built with safety features involved, right? Like, you can imagine a Klingon engineering deck does not exactly have OSHA-compliant handrails, right? Like, if they have handrails, it's to tie somebody to so you can force them into the reactor. Like, it's not gonna have you know, a lot of safety involved. So I can dig it. I get behind that. But when we're talking about like on a Federation ship, you know, there's a certain amount of utilitarianism that needs to be there. I'll even excuse the crew in the hallways on the Cerritos in, in lower decks, if only because they're particularly doing it for comedy's sake. Right. And there's a lot of things I'm willing to forgive if you're getting a joke out of it. Right having the ship be so cramped that you have people like in, you know, in the equivalent of cots and hallways because it's, you know, but like you then see the captain's quarters and it's pretty damn good on a comedy. It works, but on serious Trek, it doesn't right on serious Trek. You need to take a look at the trends of what we are doing in spaceships and what we are doing at seaborne vessels. And trying to balance that out, right? Um, And I'm not saying that Lower Decks is funny. I am saying that they're trying to be funny, for the record, right? I'm not saying they succeed, but I can get what they're going for. The the key here is, too, is on any vessel, anywhere I've ever seen any of them, it is always function before convenience, right? This isn't... You know, I've worked on cruise ships. Uh, I was actually a scuba diver on a cruise ship. I would go down with a camera and show people reefs and whatnot. And they'd get to watch in a big theater with a marine biologist talking them through what I was showing them on the camera. It was kind of fun. It was a good way to spend the summer. And look, for the guests, the rooms were not, you know, huge, but they were reasonable. You know, what they had us in as crew working on the ship is tiny stuff and you're in like two or three to a room and you know you feel like you're in a sardine can 90% of the time you don't want to be in your room because you're supposed to be doing something on board the ship and I dig it right like I get it and I also get that if we were to extrapolate trends towards the, the time of next generation it totally makes sense that most of the rooms are state rooms that you would find on like a cruise ship, kind of ideal. I get that. I respect that. That's what the goal should be that everyone gets that kind of room. But strange new worlds isn't there. We should not be there yet, right? We should be building for the, well, we could either fit in a science deck or give the captain a wet bar, right? You know I, I think the science deck would be more important to the designers right?
0: Yeah, I, I mean I even tried to to reference my own bullshit I even tried to kind of make it seem somewhat practical at least, I mean that, I basically took what I served on and, and put it in space when I did Galaxia but I wanted to make sure not to oversell it so much because it's still a, it's still a functional ship, it's not It actually is fairly... It's supposed to be dingy. It's supposed to be like a workplace and a work environment. And so, yeah, I pretty much agree with what you're saying. Uh, Rami writes in, Lower Decks isn't funny. It's mocking source material. I can understand that. Uh, With Season 1, I definitely agree, because I couldn't even get through it. Um, I, I found the whole way that they treated Boimler to just be unacceptable all around. Now, they did kind of give him a bit of... I wouldn't want to say a redemption arc because he didn't do anything wrong. Um, but they did build a the character. Arc? They, they, a salvage arc. like it. It's good. Um, they did sort of give him a salvage arc by giving him a special assignment to the Titan. And they did, you know, give him a moment where he was like, yeah, I like playing in orchestras. I like doing all the Star Trek nerd stuff. This is why I signed up for Starfleet. And the crew of the Titan ends up respecting him for it. And I was like, all right. You now have my attention. Um, season two was okay; um, it was starting to show better strides. But I think I felt that three had a lot of better moments. Now that said, it's still Rick and Morty Trek. Um, yeah. You're you're getting you're getting what you get with that show. It's not anything super profound. It's not it 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 kind of does try to be like Star Trek again in season three, but. Yeah, Rami's comment is still correct. It's just not yeah. entirely there. Um, Arende writes in: "The only thing that annoys me about the DS9 station design is the way the docking pylons point. They should point outward to give more space for ships to." D- yeah, all right, I see what you're saying, and you're right, but this is where <laughs> this is where art takes over practicality, and that's why. That's why it looks the way it does because yes, you're right. They need it would make sense to have like several different docking arms in multiple directions going outward. But what I That's going to be, be hard is, to fit in a frame and I got to do yeah. my 4 by 3 screen because yeah. What I
2: could actually see is the pylon coming down and curving in and out. So you had two uh docking points on each pylon. That I could 100% get behind, but I also go Dude, it's designed by space lizards. It's not necessarily going to be aesthetically well put together to human eyes,
0: right? Yeah, and then Arende says, speaking of available space, the Enterprise-D had the opposite problem. It was ridiculously oversized for 1,000 crew. Yes, and I think... If I'm remembering correctly, that was the intent to show that by this point in the Federation's history, they had enough resources that they could have a giant, massive ship with lots of room. You could have your, you know, 25-acre quarters with your in-home bar and fireplace stuff. It's, But that's for that time period. That's supposed to show the progression. And that's where Strange New Worlds failed, is that they made the Enterprise look too nice Arguably the same could be said for J.J. Trek, but I still love that ship regardless. Um, I'm a ship guy and I'm a sucker for the Enterprise. I'll admit it.
2: Yeah, my problem would be uh, serving on the J.J. Prize would be that I I don't think my eyes could survive that many lens flares.
0: No, no, I got you covered. See, you just need a pair of these uh, and you're set.
2: Dude, I'd have to wear welding goggles like all the time.
0: Why do you think I didn't just take my wands off that I have on and just put these over the top?
2: Well, I figured if you took off the pair of glasses, there would just be another pair of glasses underneath it anyway. And then a third pair of glasses underneath that, like, it's just, it's just sunglasses all the way down.
0: That's for the, yes, that's pretty much it. It's more, more not. I don't know. Um, Rende says, ha, you didn't read the last part of my DS9 comment. I said exactly what you mentioned. Yeah. You got me, bro. Um, Rami says, the Alberth is the best starship design heart. Okay, oh. there, there is definitely a fan base for the war canoe. Well, well go ahead. Oh, bro.
2: Bro. I, I I don't even know where to start. First, negative space in the middle of your ship. Okay? Negative space in the middle of your ship. Why? All right, so that's one. Two. How does the drive section connect to the the saucer section on the Oberth? The answer is it doesn't. So they're going to have to have like, I don't know, either JJ level, uh, you know, uh, turbo lifts or transporters built in or I I don't even know. I don't even know what the hell you do with that thing to make it functional other than like half the crew just never meets the other half of the crew. I mean, if that's what you're going for, I'm good with it. Like, you know, like it's a six month mission. They get back to dock and they're like, oh, dude, I forgot you worked on this ship. Hey, how you doing? Right. Like, or what happens if you're like, you get on the wrong part of the ship when the ship docks somewhere and you guys take off, you're on the ship, but you can't get to your quarters ever. Like that would be an excuse for sleeping in the freaking uh, hallways because, you know, well, you know, we left space dock and I couldn't get back to my section of the ship. And now I have to wait till we dock again with a bigger ship that I, we can attach at multiple points, or I have to take a shuttle somehow to the other part of the ship. It's, it's like the Romulan warbird design. It's the Romulan warbird design is the stupidest design of anything. And I love it, the aesthetic, but it is still stupid. Cause imagine you're on like deck one and you need to get to like the bottom, like the lower decks. You literally have to go all the way around the ship to get in there. Like, I, I, I don't even know. Like, I'm not asking for every ship to look like a Borg cube. Like, I'm not, okay? You know, I don't need super utilitarian design, but I need it to make some damn sense. Right?
0: Yeah. Like, yeah. Um. Rami writes in, I've gotten the Ryder Brothers to discuss furries in the aubirth. My work is done here. Yeah, well, <laughs> keep coming back, please. Um. Of course, because Corion had to ask, I, I had to bust out Uh, My special port of subs box, which, uh, if you've, some of, Rende, I think you've seen this before, contains, of course, my box of miniatures. And not to scale, because, you know, for example, here's the Enterprise D, and, uh, well, if I could keep it together, assuming it doesn't come apart. And uh, here's the Oberth. Yeah, we got a little bit of a bit of a difference here. But if you look at this particular model here, you'll see that there's probably space on this pylon here to get down, and same with this one. Um, okay. I mean, but then
2: you still have the problem of like, so first you're riding in the pylons, which I mean, you know, that doesn't seem like a particularly good plan with you know all the, the warp radiation there. Oh, Marie, H. Marie, go ahead. You got your hand up here?
1: Like, just jump in. It's all good. I don't want to cause feedback, which is why. But no, transporters. They would just transport. They would probably have a transporter pad on each spot and they would just go back and forth between the two, maybe.
2: I dig it, but here's the problem with that. They did not have in-ship site-to-site beaming until uh, Next
0: Generation. And that's specifically Uh called out.
1: Okay, because I was like, that would work perfectly, but if it's a... Okay, timeline issue, got it. It's alright,
0: in New Trek they already have whatever they need for the plot, so it's Corion's point's mood anyway. Uh, I'm just kidding, man, I love you. Uh, yeah, so... Yeah, I mean, there's the. I can see what you're saying. I think the point, the the science or the the science, there's no science. The idea behind it is that it's supposed to be. So for this particular one, uh, it actually comes apart, so you can basically detach it as a mission pod and then fly away. I don't know if that's actually canon, but as I understand, it's supposed to be function like a mission pod. That's why it's got huge bay doors on it there, and and it's yeah. So yeah. I don't know. It, I, they did it. They finally brought it into STO, and it's a fun little bastard to fly on occasion. Oh, here's a better. Yeah, so I think this is probably a more correct scaling right here. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's about right. That's about right. So, yeah, always love to bust out the old Star Trek toys. Um, yeah, yeah. Andy's
2: got a piece in there. Go for it. Yeah. Uh, first it was i used to have micro machine star, sh- uh, star trek ships yeah i think we all did at one point uh Petey just had the foresight to know that in you know 10 years he was going to be doing this show so he kept his models right i mean you know, that that's some serious it, this climate.
0: is just not something you get rid of ever this is this is i mean i know they're not you know real collectibles cuz they're out of the box not that i actually care but I mean, sure, it's my childhood, but now anytime we talk about Star Trek, it'd be like, oh, hey, check this out. And, uh, oh, yeah, I got this one too. And then, as on said, here's the entire future of the Federation fleet right there. Yeah.
2: um, You know, but, and, and then the next part is also teleporting uh, someone across the ship instead of using a turbo lift, huge waste of energy. Yeah, 100%. Right? Like, look, I, I personally think that. Um, you know, and I, I might catch flack for this, but you know what? I'll, I'll take that fight ships, similar design to things like Voyager, you know, despite the flipping up nacelle part actually make a fair bit of logical sense.
0: I actually right? agree.
2: Yeah. Like I, I totally understand you wanting to ha- separate the crew section from the, you know, the drive section. I mean, look, the less people you have looky looing in the engineering areas, the better, right? And, you know, there's something to be said about a little bit of work-life balance where you go somewhere to work, right? Instead of, like, walking five feet down a corridor to get to work. So, I dig it. Like, I dig the the multiple sections here. I'm just saying that they should have a significant um, connection area where you can have some of the more non-volatile stuff. Like... I would 100% fill the adjoining sections of like the hab section and the drive section with like cargo, right? Like that would be where I would store, like in that little area there is where I would have all the cargo base because then it's equidistant to get whatever you need for whatever system you need it for. And then you can, I mean, again, I'm not a ship designer, but I think about these things kind of logically. So yeah, I got no problem with you know, original track, like the original Enterprise. I got no problem with the Enterprise D. I got no problem with Voyager. I have very little issue with Deep Space Nine because, again, it was designed by by angry lizard people. And angry lizard people are going to have a different aesthetic.
0: Right? This one is uh, still recovering from the Dominion War.
2: Yeah, so, like, you know, I, I totally get that. I dig it. If I was designing Deep Space Nine, you probably wouldn't have so much negative space between the the sections. There would be an awful lot of used space there. But that's, again, I'm taking a look at it from a human perspective. And if I want to have a big floating bicycle wheel in space, I'm going to use all the space instead of just leaving sections of it empty because cool. But... You know, again, I'm not designing for space lizards. I'm designing for humans that probably would enjoy having that kind of space, right? Personally, I also think that, and I will give this to JJ. If I had the capability to generate artificial gravity, then the space station that they put in the JJ episode, the JJ movie with the Yorktown, I think is what they called it. If you've got artificial gravity, something like that, actually does make a fair bit of sense because who cares? I got artificial gravity generators. And even when the power goes out in like every episode where the power goes out on a ship, gravity remains. So I'm suspecting that the gravity generators are significantly robust. And if that's the case, yeah, man, I'm having, you know, weird angled upside down to other people's spaces relative. So who cares what up and down is kind of stuff. You know, because it looks cool. It would look like a, an you know, the weirdest space ornament on a Christmas tree ever. Because I could do it, right? But at the same time, it's still a sequence of spheres. And why is it spheres? Because that's easier to keep an atmosphere in. Right? Why is it got, you know, long tracks for ships to come in? Well, because that's effectively an airlock. So, I dig it. I get it. I, you know, while I would never probably design something like the Yorktown myself, because I don't think along those lines, I get the design. I understand the design. I actually think it's a decent design for something. If you want to show off, like if if your station is literally designed to dab on haters, the Yorktown is freaking perfect.
0: Yeah. And I mean, one of the complaints about the the Yorktown is that you know, that why do they have trams if someone can just use a transporter? And I think Arende actually explains that perfectly because it, it's not only a huge waste of energy, but I think the other reason, and once again, uh, New Trek overlooks this facet, is that the transporter basically operates a lot like radio frequency, in that you have to send your transmission of your person or whatever matter. And it has to be received on another, on the other end and then rematerialized. And so, if everybody's just transporting everywhere, that's you're going to get a bunch of signals. I mean, it's rare that it's ever happened to me, but there's even been times where I'm talking on the phone and I get somebody else's phone call to bridge into mine. Well, thankfully, that's just sound. It's not our matter coming together and then I end up with, like, you know, a half-black arm or something. Um. So, yeah, it, it's... Uh, Cause yeah, I, I I realized that on the most, on this episode, when they needed to use an emergency transport, that's the whole point is it's an emergency transport. It's not, it's designed to keep, you know, matter transmitting constantly throughout the area when any number of horrible plot devices could happen. And the next thing you know, you've got scrambled crew all over the place because everybody just is too lazy to walk. Um, Rende writes in, yeah, use the voids for more cargo, storage, science labs, sensors, shield generators, weapon arrays. I could keep going on. Rami writes in, modern Roman Catholic churches look like sixty sci-fi bases. And Nemesis yeah, of Eden says, Hail PD, Corion, and H. Marie, hope you are all doing well tonight. Same to you, Nemesis of Eden. Thanks for tuning in. Rami writes in Uh Spear gave the Nazis a towel, boxy building, look at or look to show dominance. Yeah. Um and Yorktown is a because we can. Yeah, absolutely. Look, if I had that
2: level of technology and I could just build whatever the hell I wanted because it looked cool, you know, there's some logic to that, right? There's some logic to being able to be like, look, you look up from this park and you see a lake. Like, that is kind of a trippy, kind of a cool concept idea, right? I mean... You know, it's, it's again, it's a case of if I wanted to show, if I wanted to build, like, the World's Fair uh, of the Federation in space, if I wanted to have a station out in the middle of nowhere where I am showing off just how cool we are, you better believe that I'm going to do, uh, like, the weirdest stuff you can possibly imagine, right, To to put together a station that shows off how cool I am, right? The thing is going to look like the craziest snowflake with upside down sections where people are walking along the same hallway going in opposite, you know, upside down and around each other. It's going to have a freaking, you know, uh, tram system that looks like a roller coaster because I can. And the whole idea is to show off how awesome my species is and how glorious I can be. Right. Like it, I am building station, you know, the, the, the deep space station dab on the haters. You know, if I'm doing that, I'm building it to look the most ridiculous I possibly can.
0: And like I said, that, that ref back, going back to the enterprise D, I mean, the technology was in such abundance by that time that it's just, that's kind of where the mentality started shifting was, uh, you know, Why put nice curves on things? What purpose do they serve besides style? Oh, well, I mean, who cares? Um, Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, i got a couple of... uh... Oh, Rende says, making a severe cube is boring. Uh, Yes, I I agree. Uh, I don't care how... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, look,
2: realistically, the most... We see this in The Expanse. Realistically, the most logical-looking spaceships are basically skyscrapers in space. Right, that's really what the the ships in the expanse look like, and that's cool. But if you have the technology to do art in space, but still make it functional, then do art.
0: Yeah, I, I mean that that's I one hundred percent agree. Arende writes in building ships that looks cool because you have the tech is addressed in Babylon Five when the Alliance makes the first human Min uh, Minbari or. Yeah, Minbari, you got it. Human Minbari ship, they say it looks like a cross between a box and a fish. Yeah.
2: Um. Now, so, for context, for those who are not Babylon 5 aficionados, the ships in Babylon 5 for the humans look very human designed. They, they look like you would expect a human ship to look like. They have sections of them that are rotating for gravity. They you know, look kind of like, imagine if a Nebulon B from Star Wars had a big rotating section in the middle of it. That's the standard kind of human ship. And the Mimbari ships look like space fish, right? And that's kind of a cool idea. And so when they start like kind of working together and building a, a ship with the two techs, it does look like box fish. And, you know, that being said, box fish is kind of a cool concept for a ship. But still box fish.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, nemesis of Eden says, I want to fly around space in a D20 shaped ship. (laughs) That happens. That happens in TOS.
2: There is a species that has a big glowing. Um, it's the one that with the little kid that serves them Troika. I can't remember the name of the species off the top of my head, but there is a dude flying around in a big glowing D20. And I respect that. Like, if, if you're gonna, you know, if you want to show off how much of a D&D nerd you are in space, flying around in a giant glowing D20 is kind of a dope move.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Now, uh, I've definitely had the, the discussion about practicality with ship, ships, and it's like... Sure, uh, we should definitely, that, that's probably going to be what a lot of them look like. That's actually kind of what Star Trek even tried to put out in some of the backstory, you know, the original, um, or the, the different enterprises throughout the years. They were definitely a- acknowledging that that's how it's going to start. Um, but I would hope that someday in the future, that yes, our ships are more artistic and also functional. Um, So, uh anyone else got any quick thoughts, last thoughts on the homecoming? Um we're coming down to our last five minutes or anything we just want to promote?
2: Well, first I want to give Arende props for trying to get me to say isodecahedron ship for the win in the chat. That that's that's pretty dope, man. That that wasn't bad.
0: Yeah, so. that was that was that was very solid. Rami writes in, did he just reference Baylock in and the first Federation? Yes, I did. Nice, nice. All right. Well, we are coming down to the last uh, couple minutes of the show. I do want to say thank you to every single one of you who's tuned in. Nemesis of Eden, Galenda, Rende, Rami, and uh, I think we got everybody there uh, who showed up. And Orville Nation, thanks for coming in. And and Pollo Zapatos, we do hope you are uh, recovering well. And uh, we missed you on the panel tonight. But we did, a, we did get a new panelist or up-and-coming panelist, uh, H. Marie. H., how do you feel about your first show? Let's put you on the spot, because why not?
1: Well, see, now that at the, at the end of it's over, I'm like, okay, it's whatever. But, no, I realize I have one of my hats bef- that I haven't sold yet. So I can actually show people what the hat looks like. Go for Go it. Go for it. So, here's my hat. Somehow. Got to figure out the camera. It's a it really cute pretty. little stocking hat. Um, they, I sell them off to where Parker works, CNC Settlery. They're acrylic made, and they're really warm. I also make scarves and beanies. I've got a beanie over here. So, cute little thing. Um, I don't have any of my scarves, but this is what I do. This is my little side hustle, as well as working jobs. But, yeah. Since he couldn't pull up the picture, I remembered I had one, so I wanted to share it.
0: Yep, and uh, for our next, next week's episode, we'll try to have your Etsy shop on standby to promote as well. Um, so we can... Well, I mean, that's where your stuff is directly. People can buy directly from you instead of having to go through the, the sutlery if they don't want to.
1: It means I have to make it actually function now.
0: <laughs> oh, darn business. Um, <laughs> oh, man, we're getting more viewers. Oh, so I don't want to do that. Um... Uh, Yeah, so next week, of course, we'll be wrapping up Tulsa King. We'll be continuing with DS9, and uh, I think we're going to have to add something else. I was hoping we had 1923 to get us through the rest of this month, but that's going on, boss. So actually, if any of you guys watching and listening would like to suggest us something to try and watch, we are open to suggestions. Um, Just don't be upset if we decide not to but we do appreciate uh, fan input because we are here to judge content based on its writing. and, And of course discuss why we like or dislike things. And you guys in the chat are just as much a part of this show. Um, yeah, it might be our faces and voices up here, but you guys came out tonight and you definitely drove the conversation and you definitely helped to keep it interesting and not just, just fixated on the talking points of each episode. So we greatly appreciate that. And, um, well, we hope we are doing enough job good enough job that you guys will continue to come back so uh any last words anybody stay awesome everyone and uh yeah um we'll be getting super quest back up and running this week hopefully um and possibly just some other random streams throughout the week and uh but I'm Peter York with the Rider brothers we'll see you next week This has been a presentation of the Ryder Brothers Tuesday Night Live Show. The Ryder Brothers, restoring respect into discourse.